So our passage tonight is 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, as Blake just said. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, feel free to use one of the blue Bibles that's in the chair back in front of you. You can find our passage tonight on page 588 of those blue Bibles. And then if you brought your own, um, I can't help you with your page number. I would just say, look to the right, turn to the right, move to the right. If you get to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you've gone too far, come back to the left a little bit. But that is going to be where we are. And so as you're turning there uh, tonight, I just wanted to spend a minute or two uh, reviewing what Jeff covered with us last, uh, last time, two Sundays ago, two Sunday nights ago, from the first couple of verses in this passage, really the introduction to what we're going to be talking about. And so in those two verses, uh, the opening two verses of chapter 1, we saw that it is, in fact, Peter writing this particular epistle. Um, he's also writing to the elect exiles, or as he shared with us, these are the chosen of God. They're Christians. And we saw that they've now been scattered out into various cities in the region. Um, and now they're starting to face some persecution as they've moved into those cities that you see listed in um, that introduction passage. Um, and so these are, Christians are being persecuted for living out their Christian beliefs. They're not, it's not a situation where these are Christians, just um, members of the local PTA, or they're a coach in the local Little League um, Baseball League, or part of a philanthropic organization. These are Christians leaving, living out their Christian beliefs, they're identified as Christians, and they're separate from uh, the world around them, the communities around them. And so because of that difference, uh, that's why they're starting to face this persecution um, that Peter is writing now to encourage them in. And so um, as we see this, they're now beginning to be attacked. They're being punished and persecuted. And it's a similar picture to what Blake covered this morning or has for the last couple of weeks out of uh, Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, chapters 5 and chapter 6, dealing with some persecution that we're seeing there. Um, so it's a similar picture. And as Pastor Blake said this morning, um, when you take your faith seriously, you'll face pushback. And so that's the picture we're seeing now in 1 Peter. It's not just Christians in the community. It's Christians standing on biblical or godly doctrine, um, in this case, standing on God's promises, uh, living a godly Christian life, not just being a good person, kind person, that kind of thing. And so now because of that, they're getting this pushback. They're getting this uh, persecution coming their way. And so then, as Jeff wrapped up our, our time a couple of weeks ago, he made a really good uh, summary that, that sums up where we're going to be headed with this. And it's Peter's encouragement to remember who we are as Christians and also what we believe. And so now that brings us to our passage tonight where Peter, the author of this book, is encouraging uh, the, the elect exiles in their encouragement. And this is how he starts in verse 3 through verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so as 
Peter begins this letter, keep in mind, he's not writing in isolation. Peter's not all by himself, has no idea what these Christians are dealing with, but he understands the personal pain, the personal struggles that these Christians are experiencing. And he knows that the circumstance will require some help and he'll eventually get to that in his epistle. But first he needs to reorient their hearts and their minds to the central truth of the Christian faith. And as he does this, by refocusing them on a long-term view for their lives as Christians, it's to remember who they are and to remember what they believe. And so he challenges them not to get caught up in the moment of the persecution, but to look down the road to the last days. It's an encouragement that there's something greater yet to come. And in theology, we call this eschatology. It's the study of the last things. And so, yes, as Christians, the readers of 1 Peter have already received eternal life, but the manifestation and the consummation is yet to come. And some refer to this as, so this idea as an already but not yet type of situation. And so as Christians, we, we have security, we have protection as followers of Christ, but there is something greater that is yet to be realized and finalized. And so that's the view Peter is going to urge his readers to have, and we're going to see this continue throughout this epistle, not just tonight, but as the weeks unfold. And so as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to have four main points that we're going to look at. The first point could be titled, Peter's view of Christ. Peter's view of Christ, that's the first point. And really the other three points we're going to cover tonight are going to flow from this apostolic view that Peter has of who Jesus is. And so Peter begins this passage with, with the phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word blessed in 1 Peter isn't the same root word for blessed that we read back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. We know that passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the, the meek. That's not the same, uh, while it's the same English word, it's not the same root word. Here in 1 Peter, as we look at this blessed, it's a picture of praise and of worship. It's not the same as what we saw in, and read about in Matthew 5, but this whole passage is really about praise and worship. And so Peter's telling the elect, elect exiles that when they're facing the real and painful persecution, for living that Christian life, they should praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him, worship him. In the middle of your persecution, praise God. That's his message to them. That's his first message. And so while God the Father is the object of our praise, we see a clear identification here as we walk through our passage and we see this work of Jesus the Son that's so critical to the redemptive plan of God the Father. So as Peter identifies these two persons of the triune God, he's also identifying Jesus the Son by his work within the Father's redemptive plan. And so just think for a second about Peter's understanding of who Jesus was. When you think about the whole storyline of Scripture, you take the whole storyline of, of the Bible and think through um, the discussions, the, the conversations that we know Peter had with Jesus or teachings that Peter had, how did Peter see Jesus? And so one of the places we might look is Matthew 16. You don't necessarily have to turn there, uh, but I just want to use it as a little bit of background behind the rest of our passage for tonight. But in Matthew 16, we have this scene where Jesus is with his 
disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been feeding the 5,000, but now they're in Caesarea Philippi, and Peter asks his disciples two questions. First question he says to his disciples is, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples' response was, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah and, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked them a second question, and this one goes to the disciples. And remember, these are his followers. They're not the apostles. They're not the small, tight group, but they're still his followers. They're the larger group, the disciples um, that are following Jesus. They're learning. They're hearing him preach. And so he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And, so, and we know that Peter is the first one to speak up. The one who's writing our passage for, the night is the first, for tonight is the one who is the first one to respond here and answer this question. And he says to Jesus in response to his question of who do you say that I am, he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so Peter's not wrong there. But it's a limited view at this point. It's a limited perspective of where, um, how Peter views Jesus. Um, it's not a full description. Um, and I would even go so far as to say Peter probably didn't really understand at this point who Jesus was entirely. And so why do I say that? We can just con continue to read that passage in Matthew 16. And we get down to verse 21 in Matthew 16, and Jesus begins, right after this, this questioning, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he, Jesus, must go to Jerusalem. And by going to Jerusalem, he'll experience suffering. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. He'll be put in a grave, and then three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. But how does Peter respond to what Jesus says there in Matthew 16? His response is, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He takes him aside, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and just says, well, we're not going to let that happen. Nobody's going to take you. Nobody's going to beat you. Nobody's going to kill you. We're going to take care of you. And so this gives us a picture of what Peter's missing related to Jesus' identity because what Jesus has just done is reveal himself as the suffering servant. And Peter's missed it. His identity is the Christ that Peter had initially said. He is the son of the living God. But Jesus is also the suffering servant in the redemptive plan of God the Father. He's the perfect sacrifice that could do what all the Old Testament sacrifices were unable to do. Jesus is the son incarnate, must be the one to die for our sins. Totally and completely. He must be resurrected from the dead. This is the identity of Jesus, and it's critical to that redemptive plan that God the Father has put in place. And so while Peter hadn't yet come to that understanding of Jesus as a suffering servant back in Matthew 16, as we walk through our first Peter passage, we're going to see that Peter's now come to this bigger, broader, more robust view of who Christ is. He now understands, after spending more time with Jesus, and Jesus further revealing himself to his disciples. Now in 1 Peter, Peter's going to express to us as we read this uh, an encouragement based off of the suffering servant and the work of Christ. And so um, what we do see in the triune God that relates to us personally is revealing Christ little by little. 
We don't see in Scripture where Jesus or the triune God reveals himself in any single moment. It's a progressive revelation. And so that's what we've seen in this life of Peter is by looking back at Matthew 16, trying to look at now this understanding that Peter has here in 1 Peter in this epistle, it's this progressive revelation. So our view of the triune God is deepened and our view of him is increased when we spend time in scripture, when we spend time in prayer, gathering with the church on Sundays to read, to sing, to pray and to preach his word, God will reveal himself to us slowly in his timing, progressively. We'll learn more. We'll see him more. We'll understand the things of him. He is a knowable God. As transcendent as he is, he is still knowable. And so Peter's progressive understanding of Jesus' identity is going to pour over and through our entire passage here from 1 Peter. So look back at verse 3 with me. We see there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God is to be praised because he has caused us to be born again. The word of God is sown, and then God, by his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us. Meaning he causes his people who are spiritually dead to become spiritually alive. And this work isn't based on anything that we've done because salvation is never by man. It's never by our own human works. It's solely by grace through faith. This picture here in 1 Peter 3 is not only a picture of praise and worship, but it's a picture of salvation. And this is why Peter begins this letter by encouraging us to praise the triune God because he has saved us. Praise God for his salvation. God is to be praised simply for who he is and what he's done. And since who he is is the infinite God, and since his works are too many to be counted, there are an infinite number of reasons why God is to be praised. But the pinnacle, the pinnacle of his work, the pinnacle reason he is to be praised is because of his salvation of sinners which gives us a picture of his unending mercy and his extravagant grace, most clearly seen through the life and work of his son. God saves his people and is therefore worthy of all praise and honor and glory. So friends, tonight, whatever problem you're facing, this is where you need to begin as a Christian. That's what Peter's message is to you. Praise be to God for his salvation. Our second point that we're going to look at is the means by which we're saved. The means by which we're saved. And so again, still in verse 3, we see that it's according to his great mercy. And a very simple, simple, simple definition, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Again, very simple definitions. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. And we all deserve wrath because we're all born, born sinners in thought, word, and deed. And we therefore all fall short of God's glory, as Romans 3.23 reminds us. And we also read how Paul links God's saving work according to his own mercy and the means of salvation through his regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we read that in Titus 
Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The fact that no part of our salvation is earned by us, that it solely comes by way of God's mercy. How does this not change our worship and our praise? It should destroy any pride that lurks in our hearts. It should destroy any thought of us having anything to do with our salvation. It should demolish any self-promotion, self-seeking attitude because it's all by God's mercy. It should lead us, brothers and sisters, to be the most merciful, forgiving people on the planet because we've been shown unending mercy. And then we see that according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope is kind of like that phrase in Christ. It's a phrase that's tossed around a lot. Rarely, though, do we kind of stop and kind of consider our definition of hope the same as what the author of the scripture means. Hope is a desire accompanied by an expectation of fulfillment. I'll say that again. Hope is a desire that's accompanied by an expectation of fulfillment. So it's more than just a desire. There's something else to it. It must be desire that is paired with this expectation of fulfillment. That's what hope really is. And we all need hope. Our consumer-driven advertising industry knows that we long for and we look for hope. So we're constantly bombarded with this promise of hope and they're really empty promises when it comes down to it. We hear promises of the right investment that's going to give us financial hope for the future. Um, insurance companies are going to ensure that you're in good hands, right? Um, even people we love and who love us will promise to never let us down. They promise to be there whenever we need them. But really, at the end of the day, they don't have the power to make sure that happens. And so in our world that's filled with troubles and pressures and stresses, Hopelessness is often just right at the doorstep of our lives. It's there waiting to devour and overtake us because we do have desires, but we don't often have that expectation, let alone an assurance of those desires being fulfilled. But this hope that Peter's writing about is different than any type of hope that the world can offer us. The hope our salvation gives us is the only living hope. That's what that passage says. It's assured because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We've sung about this today, this morning, in some of the songs we sung through this. Friends, the resurrection changes everything, including giving us a source of living hope. That's why we sing these things today and tonight even. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is ultimately the means. It's the source of our living hope in the midst of a dying world. Because anything and everything else that we have hope in, it's either dying or it's dead already. And all it takes is for temperatures to get above 100 degrees for a couple of weeks and rain shut off for a week or two and grass turns brown and dries up or plants start to wither. We just experienced that in the month of July. So trees are going to die, cars are going to rust, food's going to spoil. But we're saved according to his great mercy into a living hope. So our third point that we're going to take from our passage is really a question. Saved into what? 
saved into what? And so we see next as we walk through our passage that we're also born again to an inheritance. Or we might say we're saved into an, into an eternal inheritance. As God's children, we've been born anew by his spirit, born into his eternal kingdom. And we become recipients of his eternal promises and his eternal inheritance, which is stored and kept in heaven for us. And so the word inheritance here is the same word used in the Old Testament. It has the same idea that back there in the Old Testament referred to the Israelites going into the promised land. That's the land that was promised and then given to the Israelites after the exodus. That they would enter into God's rest in the promised land. And so as Peter describes our inheritance, we see his description. He uses the word imperishable. He uses the word undefiled. He uses the word unfading. Is that not encouraging to your soul as you think about his work and the inheritance that's waiting for us? Our eternal Christian inheritance cannot be destroyed by an enemy. It can't be stolen by a thief. It can't spoil like food. It won't rust and it's not going to fade. That should encourage us. That's why Peter says this to these elect exiles. And then fourthly, our last point that we'll look at tonight is titled, The Guarding of Our Salvation. In verse 5 we see, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're guarded in salvation by God's power through faith. And again, what a comfort to know that the all-powerful God who spoke the universe into, existing, into existence is guarding this. And he's guarding us. But in what sense is he guarding us? Based on the persecution and suffering that Peter's about to address further in, in chapter 1 with the Christians, it's clear that God hasn't promised to guard us from difficulties in the world. Many or all of us have our own testimony of trials, suffering, tribulation, our own persecution. So that's not what's being guarded. Instead, what is God guarding for us? He's guarding for us the promise of the final inheritance and the completion of our salvation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is at work guarding us because there is still human responsibility. And in some way, our finite human minds can't fully understand how salvation is only and always all of God so that he gets the glory, but the conduit through which God's salvation flows is our faith. And in this, Peter's lockstep with the Apostle Paul and the rest of Scripture where salvation that is God's work by God's power flows through faith. Faith that's not ambiguous. It's not unknown. It's a faith that is always focused on Jesus Christ. It's salvation is always by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so as we just wrap up our devotional time tonight, I want to just ask a question after walking through this. Christian, have you ever faced persecution? the kind of persecution that we're talking about here in 1 Peter, where you lived as a Christian 
standing on God's word, not compromising your faith for preaching, for teaching, for even speaking God's word unapologetically, where you lived a Christian life that resulted in you being attacked or slandered or punished for your identification with Christ. And so with that in mind, in our passage here tonight, reading Peter's encouragement, what would Peter say to you? Praise God. Praise God for the salvation that you possess as a Christian, as an elect exile, as a sojourner. Praise God for that. Peter reminds you to remember who you are in your faith. Peter encourages you to have and keep a long-term eschatological view of your life here on earth with an eye to the inheritance that awaits you. Don't get bogged down and distracted in the persecution. While they are real, while they are hurtful and painful, there's no persecution here on earth that can take our salvation away from us. It's secure, it's protected, and it awaits us for all eternity. And so finally, I just want to read a passage, another passage out of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, as we finish up our time here tonight. In in, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage tonight and we even consider our own experience with persecution, with sufferings, with trials, I pray that this passage from Peter is seen freshly in our eyes. And it impacts our souls. It impacts our hearts. The encouragement here is to, yes, These are real persecutions. They hurt. They're painful. Yet we have a salvation that will never fade. It will never be stolen from us. It will never go away, and it's because of your work. It's because of your redemptive plan that was put in place so long ago. And so, Father, as we just contemplate on these things and let these things sink in. I just pray, Father, that it would change how we praise you. It would change how we worship you. And that would bring you honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.